Well, so we finished our First Samuel series. So some of you are like, why is that slide on the screen? I thought we were done. Uh, and you can find the whole entire series on our website and uh, podcast channels. But as some of you who have been around for a while know, when we finish a series, we often tie together some extra material or thoughts from all the messages. And, you know, each week, uh, tons of material gets cut, uh, normally whole points or several points. And so what I'll do is I'll just put them aside and then from all that material, pull some extra thoughts together at the end of a series or in January, we always do our, our New Year's Nuggets uh, message that is similar in philosophy. So for a while, we were really on a roll with these series that started with H's. And so at the end of the Hosea series, I was able to do Hosea holdovers. Oh, take that back. Take it back. Take it back. Um, in uh, our hospitality series, we were able to do hospitality holdovers. And then in our healing series, Come and Heal Us, we had healing holdovers. So that was working out well. Uh, then we did pandemic perspectives. And so we had pandemic ponderings. And then for our Exodus series, at the end, we had Exodus Extras. And now for our Samuel series, see, I was going to have you guess, but I think you already saw it. But you know it's going to be an alliteration, so what's it going to be? Did you see it? You saw it. You can Pretend you didn't see it. Guess. <laughs> yes, Samuel supplements uh, today. So Samuel songs. No, wrong, Paul. <laughs> Samuel supplements. So... As always, you're welcome. All right, uh, so four supplements. So number one is I want to talk about David as historical person. So David's one of, if not the central figure in the Old Testament. And so uh, for a while, you know, skeptics and some historical scholars who were out to kind of disprove the Bible often argued that uh, David's kingdom was a later creation, uh, that perhaps even David was an invented figure by the Israelites, and they pointed out that there was no archaeological evidence for his reign, so no hard proof outside of the biblical text. But then in 1993, uh, up in northern Israel, where the city of Dan was believed to be, a, a stone monument, what's called a, a stele that conquerors would set up when they had a battle, uh, was discovered. And this is often referred to as the, the Tel Dan uh, inscription or Tel Dan stele. And it gets a lot of attention because it's a reference from a nation or source outside of Israel, so from uh, somebody outside of the nation, and it refers to the uh, Bet David, the house of David. Uh, if you know the word uh, Bethlehem, Bethlehem, it's the house of bread. Well, this says Bet David, the house of David. And this inscription dates to around 830 BC, so not long after David. And it actually references other Israelite kings as well. I know you can't like see all that, but this kind of points to where it says the Bet David, the house of David. But this is from another conquering king and talks about Joram and Jehoram of the house house of David. And uh, so they're mentioned there as well. And it's a very interesting uh, piece, and you can kind of find this if you just, you know, uh, Google uh, the, the stele there. So that's for those of you who kind of, you know, number one, love history, uh, but also, you know, sometimes we just need a little bit of extra encouragement that our faith is grounded 
on historical facts and on historical events. And we have more things like this um, from other things outside the Bible, such as uh, from the Egyptian pharaoh Merneptah, and we have the Merneptah Stele, which dates back to the 13th century BC, and it's the first mention of Israel from outside the Bible, and it talks about the Israelite people being in the land of Canaan. And so uh, it's evidence of the Exodus um, for Israel. So you can be confident that these are real historical events being mentioned and actually verified in the ancient writings of other nations. Now, of course, this doesn't prove that this is the Word of God. You have to make that choice. But it does show that these are historically verifiable events, that David was actually a real person. And of course, the further in time you get, the more of this kind of evidence you have, including, you know, we have numerous mentions of Jesus from outside the Bible, from uh, extra-biblical sources. So, you know, that whether or not Jesus lived is, is really not debatable. Uh, even atheists believe that Jesus was a real person and that we can confirm a lot, if not most, of the events of his life. But again, whether you accept him as God and Savior is something that you need to figure out. But it's one of the most important questions you could ever consider. So I would say, look at the historical evidence, which is actually quite strong for the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Anyway, speaking of Jesus, uh, the second supplement here is David and Jesus parallels that we recognize. So one reason David is so important is that through David, God establishes his covenant that will bring the Savior the Messiah to the world from the line of David. And if you read Matthew's gospel and the genealogy at the beginning of the, his book, you can trace that descent to yourself and you can see that it was important to them. And it's why Jesus is called the son of David. And it's interesting that Jesus is born in the town of David, Bethlehem. But David and Jesus, they both begin their public ministry at the age of 30. And although that seems young uh, at the time, it wouldn't have been considered as young. But at the, the same time, the decade or so before their public ministry, both David and Jesus spent most of their time in the wilderness, in a time of preparation and pruning in the deserts. And it was mostly spent in anonymity, kind of forgotten, even written off. As people, you know, who once had great promise spoken over them when they were young, they had a great call on their life, but they weren't really fulfilling their potential. They weren't really living up to the expectations that were put upon them. But both Jesus and David patiently waited and persevered until it was their time. They both also chose non-violent, non-forceful establishment of their kingdom. As we talked about, David did not kill Saul despite many opportunities, which made him so different from other kings and fulfilled Israel's call to be a different kind of nation. For the surrounding nations in Israel or in the ancient Near East, and still today in a lot of places, the only way to the throne was through warfare and violence and assassination of other leaders. That's the only way you got to the throne. But David's ascent to the throne is essentially unprecedented in that he waits and the Lord clears the way for him. Even though all his friends were like, let's do this, David, let's get the swords out. And we see the same way of peace and patience with Jesus. 
Everyone wanted Jesus to overthrow the Roman government through military warfare. They were looking for a conquering military hero and Messiah. And so when Judas comes with the crowd and the military to betray Jesus, his disciples think it's finally time for war. This is the night before his death, and they're still thinking this way. And in Luke 22, it says, when Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? See, they're still thinking, this is how you get power. And one of them did strike the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear, it says. But Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. And that was a prophetic act of Jesus that communicated, that's not how this kingdom is going to work. It's not how this kingdom is going to be established. That's why I've pointed out in this series that we should not put our hope or our efforts or our money into politics and fortifying militaries. That's not the way of the kingdom. The kingdom of Jesus is different. And if you want to fight, you fight on your knees. You fight standing in worship. And especially and most importantly, you fight in the way we live our lives, bringing light into darkness through acts of mercy and justice and kindness to those around us. That's how we spread the kingdom. So these next two supplements are actually uh, also parallels between David and Jesus. Uh, but one of the reasons David was able to patiently wait for his kingdom rather than to take it by force is that he had a great gift of discernment. So learn to discern. David listened to a higher authority than just the voices around him or the voice of the culture around him that would have said, hey, take it by force, take what you can get, look out for number one, David. But no, he was able to discern the voice and call of God and what God wanted from the expectations of others. And this is so hard to do. But what separated David is he's able to sift through these loud and competing voices on what God wants and wait patiently for God's plan to unfold. And this kind of discernment is especially hard, you know, when we're in the desert of our lives, like David was, because that's when we're often looking for a quick fix, the way David's men did in those stories. And I've preached on this topic of discernment before, and you can find that message and get a more detailed teaching on how to make good and godly decisions. But let's just briefly outline the, the three questions we can always ask, which come from the spiritual exercises of Ignatius of Loyola, and which reflect the three temptations of Jesus in the wilderness. So real quick, when you're learning to discern, you can ask these questions. Is there anything in this decision that's motivated by money, wealth, or financial security? And you're just asking the question, is this decision motivated by the desire for honor, recognition, or affirmation? And then lastly, is this decision rooted in the, the desire for power or influence? And we can pulse these uh, during the week. But we have to come before the Lord honestly and simply ask, Lord, what are you calling me to do no matter what the outcome is? 
the best example in, in my and Hannah's life is uh, eight years ago when we were discerning our next step of where we were going to pastor, and we ended up being uh, offered two positions kind of simultaneously at the same time, and so it's just a classic example of needing discernment, right? Which one? And so we literally took these three questions and other prayer exercises uh, out into the desert, uh, not literally, but meaning we took a day of prayer out somewhere and sought the Lord. And the short story is that, you know, one position, and it doesn't mean you wouldn't take it and God wouldn't call you there, but one position uh, paid about twice as much and was a way more kind of recognizable post with potential uh, influence. But it became clear through the process, for whatever reason, that God was calling us here to Oceanside, when at a time there wasn't much attractive here about the job. And it was perhaps a, a strange decision to those around us. So you can ask these questions whether you're considering a job change, uh, buying a car or a house, a, a dating relationship or a marriage, considering being on the church council, whether or not to get a master's degree, whatever it might be. So learn to discern the voice of God, which does often come through and includes listening to the voice of others, but discerning that out with the Lord, but often not from whom we might expect. And that was the case for David. So the fourth and last supplement here is to listen to women. You can just give a loud amen. Woo! Yeah, all right. You know, part of David's humble heart was that like Jesus, he was willing to listen to women in a day and age where men did not do that. Right? Women were considered inferior second-class citizens in those days, and certainly not to be consulted in, you know, men's business of decision-making. And remember the story of Nabal in 1 Samuel 25 and how, again, David's men around them are just ready to kill this dude the first chance they get. Then at first, David is actually on board too. He's going to do it. But then the Lord sends a wise woman, Abigail, the wife of Nabal, and she gives some wise counsel on why he shouldn't do this. And it shows incredible humility and softness of hearts on David's part to listen to a woman instead of his mighty men. For in that day, you just really didn't do that. And you especially didn't take military advice from women. But that certainly doesn't stop God from using and involving women in these, you know, men-only types of decisions. And so, kind of hint, hint, Something we believe is important here at Oceanside is that women should always have a place at the table of decision-making in the world in general, but especially in God's kingdom and church because they will often see and perceive things that men don't or have insight the way Abigail does here. And it's why if you're a student of Christian history, you know that at the height of every Christian revival, what's something that always happens, women rise to the top in leadership. And even when God's word is describing the ideal, such as in Acts 2, it's the equal voice of men and women. And so I would be wary of being a part of any organization that doesn't have women at the table of vision making. I don't think it would be a good biblical example. Just a side note, even though Abigail dissuades uh, David from military actions, when there is military action in the Bible, it's not uncommon or unusual to find women singing battle songs and being involved in different ways as well. 
And remember that it was a woman, Hannah, who introduces the main themes of 1 Samuel in her song in chapter 2 that we looked at. So let's go back there and kind of end where we started as a way to close our series, reviewing some of the, the main teachings, especially from the life of David. So this is kind of a concluding word from Hannah's song. And I'm going to start in verse 6, and let's read the bold together. So I'll read the non-bold, and you read the bold, just as a way to proclaim God's word. Uh, but also, you'll now that we've been through the end of this series, you'll pick up on a lot of themes that were present in the series. So uh, say the bold with me if you can uh, read it and see it. The Lord brings death and makes alive. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He raises the poor from the dust. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. He will guard the feet of his faithful servants. It is not by strength that one prevails. The Most High will thunder from heaven. He will give strength to his king. Remember the last message where we looked at David's song at the end where he says in 2 Samuel 22, Your help has made me great. David was fulfilling Hannah's prophetic song from 1 Samuel 2 where she exclaimed, It is not by strength that one prevails. It is in the Lord. And what a great lesson that we don't or at least shouldn't determine the outcome of our life by our own strength, trying to carve out our own desires. Rather, we put our trust in God's strength and we prevail through Him. And that's the lesson of 1 Samuel. As Hannah says in verse 9, He will guard the feet of His faithful servants. And feet, of course, were, you know, the, the main form of transportation in that day, right? But it was a very dangerous form of transportation through the difficult terrain. But God's Word reminds us that He will guard the feet of His faithful servants, that even as you navigate difficult circumstances in life, God is looking after you. He is watching you. He will guard your feet.